Welcome to Tim Gaither Podcast, episode 66. My buddy Steve Kramer is my guest today from Kansas City and now my neighbor in uh, in Los Angeles. It's funny, you probably live closer to me now than you did when we were in Kansas City. Probably, because you probably lived over on the Kansas side. I grew up in Overland Park or um, Lenexa, Shawnee. We got evicted a lot when I was a kid. <laughs> we got evicted all the time. We moved in the middle of the night a lot. Um, but I grew up all over that area. I never knew, I never figured out why we didn't just move to Wyandotte or something where it was like not quite as expensive to live because we were always fucking broke. Yeah. Always. I can relate to that because I, I kind of feel like that my family, um, would have really done well in Wyandotte, you know, that like, that's where sort of like we should have lived. Yeah. Uh, instead of trying to live in other places. Yeah. And, uh. Getting evicted, it's like we'd have just. We probably should have grown up and wind up the both of us. We probably <laughs> did you get evicted a lot? Well, it depends. If, on my mom's side, yes. Um, but uh, on my dad's side, not so much. Okay. Now, did you have? Did you grow up with your mom? Well, my parents were married until I was nine, and uh, I was the baby of the family, and I was always like um, the peacemaker, or yeah. I tried to be. Um, I was always like, don't fight everyone and all that shit. And I was, they, they would like, you know, see what you're doing to the baby and all that shit. And then when I got to be like nine and my dad was finally like, we're getting a divorce. I was like, good. <laughs> you know, I was finally so over of listening to all their shit. So I lived with my dad and my stepmom until I was, I lived with them for like two years because wrestling was really important to me. And uh, my dad was always like, well, if you go live with your mom, I guess you'll just never see me again, which was probably bullshit, but <laughs> it scared me enough that I never went and lived with my mom. Um, until uh, I was, when I lived with my dad and my stepmom, I was just fucking miserable. And uh, I ended up flunking the seventh grade because I never did any of my schoolwork. Like I would just read all day long. And I, but I, at school, I would read books, but just fiction shit. I wouldn't read, I wouldn't do any of my schoolwork. And I flunked the seventh grade. And uh, so I, I was so terrified of going back to school with all those kids that, that I knew from middle school that uh, I was like, well, fuck it. If all of a sudden it just dawned on me, I was like, if my dad doesn't love me enough to not have anything to do with me because I go and live with my mom and want to be happy, then piss on him. <laughs> and. But wrestling was really important to me, so I didn't want to not be away from him. But then when all that happened, I was like, there's no way I'm going back to school with all those snotty-ass kids and letting them know I flunked the seventh grade. Because <laughs> right. I wasn't stupid. I just didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of the best thing that ever happened to me. And then I, and then I lived with my mom, and, and, uh, and she was married a couple times. But anyway, without getting in, into all of it, it, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me, but we were dirt poor, and we used to get evicted all the time, and we never had a phone or a car, and the worst thing was coming home and seeing that eviction notice on your door, and it, usually it happened whenever I had, like, like a friend with me, you know? It'd be like, yeah, come over once in a blue moon, somebody come over to my house, and there'd be a fucking eviction notice on the <laughs> door. Like the worst possible time. <laughs> like, you have until midnight to get your shit out, and you're like, what's that? Nothing. You know, I'm just kind of... It's interesting because um, our paths first crossed at Stanford's. Mm -hmm. um, we started right around the same time. I think you started maybe just... Uh, probably maybe a year six, or two after you, probably. Was it? It, it, it probably... It couldn't have been more than a, a year, I don't think. But Maybe it wasn't, but you were already featuring and kind of a big deal in Kansas City already when I started... Well, the funny thing is, like that you were the sorry to interrupt you. You were the it guy when I started. Like that's that's Kramer. He's already featuring and 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 all that shit. And you know, well, thanks. I appreciate that because I really had no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> None of us did. But uh, but it was a really cool time um, at Stanford's. You know that period was really special. And I want to talk about that here in a minute. But it's cool because 
you know, you sort of, you just see somebody come in and you would see so many, I mean, every week there's like a new guy, a bunch of new guys that come in and they try it and, and most of them don't do anything. But then every once in a while, every once in a great while, somebody will come in and it's almost like, you know, instantly that there's something different about this person. They do usually really well their first time and then they keep coming back and they usually have a bunch of friends or, you know, uh, followers that start, you know, that really believe in them. And of course you were one of those, uh, guys and, um, but you, that's sort of where the story starts and you don't really know the backstory. So I didn't really know anything about you. And, uh, and you really didn't know that much about me, but it's interesting because I actually got held back in the eighth grade. Really? Yep. (laughs) And I ran away from home and I got held back in the eighth grade and, uh, I had sort of a crazy kind of a life growing up, but I, I can really relate because I think that um, there's certain people who um, humor becomes sort of like a survival technique. Yeah. It's like a self-defense kind of a thing that um, it's almost like when you have nothing else to fall back on, Yeah. Um, that the ability to see the humor in a situation is sometimes it's all that you have. Yeah. And, um, and so I can really relate to that. Uh, dude, my brother and I used, we, we lived with my dad and my stepmom. Um, they never let us do shit. I mean, it was always just, and, but we used to crack each other up. We would just lay down in this basement room that my dad had made for us. He like built us a room in the basement. <laughs> Sounds awful. <laughs> but we laid, we, we would just lay down there. I would lay on the floor or on the bed or vice versa. And we would just crack each other up about how fucking miserable we were. And how we, you know, hated my stepmom at the time. And uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Sounds exactly like me. We had a room built in the basement. Uh, if you could call it built in the basement. Didn't get along with my stepmom. And, um... And I was never allowed to watch anything. Mm-hmm. I remember I saw, <clears throat> coincidentally, uh, the year that I ran away from home, uh, was the first time I ever saw Saturday Night Live. And it was the episode where uh, Dana Carvey sang um, Chopping Broccoli. Yeah. And he did like a bunch of impressions. And I was like, just, I became obsessed with Dana Carvey. I thought, this guy is the greatest thing ever. And I'd already been doing a few impressions of like Pee Wee Herman and um, Beetlejuice and uh, things like that. And it was really the only way that I could get attention at school. Uh, but it was like a lot of attention. There. Like it was crazy kind of attention that I wasn't used to. Mm-hmm. Certainly a lot different than the kind of attention that I was getting at home. You know, I was yeah. getting my ass whooped uh, for not doing the right thing. So you lived with your dad and stepmom? Mm-hmm. Okay. I lived with my mom in the beginning. Um, growing up in, uh, in Independence, actually. And then we, uh, they went to court and I ended up switching and, and going live with my dad and my stepmom, I think in the third grade. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's crazy because I was always cracking jokes on the bus and in class. And, uh, I really didn't give a, give a rat's ass about anything. Mm-hmm. But did you feel like, um... When you actually started doing Stanford's, because I don't know if you felt like this is what I felt like. I literally sort of looked at it like that's really when my life began because before that I didn't really feel like I had anything to offer in this world or that I was really that good at anything. Or yeah. like Almost like, like, okay, this is my calling. This is what I was supposed to do. Right. And everything changed for me. The, my whole outlook on the way that I saw myself the way that I saw other people, I I couldn't even really talk to people before I started doing stand-up. I was agoraphobic. Um, I had no social skills. And, agoraphobic is which one? Uh, that's when you are like a fear of um, being in public, of okay. being around a lot of other people. Okay. I had a touch of that. Yeah. And I didn't so, like going to church or any of those places. If I went anywhere where there was crowded, this is why I couldn't go to parties when I was younger because if I went somewhere like at a party and there was more than like four or five people, I instantly became consumed with this feeling like something really bad was about to happen and it lasted the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was funny because like my friends would have, they would always have me do like these impersonations that, 
you know, like to maybe two or three other people. But if uh, my friends would uh, say, hey, come to, uh, you know, uh, Fire Marshal Bill for uh, this, come, you know, the, come and follow me in this room and come do Fire Marshal Bill. And I'd say, okay, and I'm walking. And if it was more than like four or five people, like I would completely freeze up. Yeah. And I, I couldn't do it. And I would just take off running. I would become terrified. Um so I couldn't do it, which is funny because before I did Stanford's, about six months before I did Stanford's, I won a uh, Halloween contest at my, I was working at Citibank. Okay. And I did, um, uh, and, and I dressed up and did an impersonation of Fire Marshal Bill. And there was a place called Woody's that I went to uh, to participate in this uh, contest and I won like a thousand dollars. Wow. And so he actually hired me to start coming in on the weekends and just doing like these dumb little fire marshal bill skits. Yeah. And that's what really led up to me, you know, about six months later going and doing Stanford's for the first time. Without that, I don't even know if I would have been able to do it. Were you terrified the first time? Yes. Yeah. I was like, man, I had so many beers in me. But I had, I probably had about 20 friends that came to uh, see, uh, see me either succeed or fail miserably yeah but uh but yeah i was uh did you ever get like any really good advice like emory emory uh maybe my third or fourth time up on stage pulled me out to the side and he said that i was like as i was talking i kept stroking the microphone cord you know yeah so I, that's when i started like holding on to the microphone the mic stand because i was like i have to do something with my other arm to okay. look <laughs> Not so. well, Burgess said something to me. He, the only thing, the only thing he said to me, and I never did it again. He goes, he goes, Gaither, comics don't hold the mic cord. Singers hold the mic cord. <laughs> and so I just, you know, because I would do the same thing. I would just kind of hold the mic cord, you know, and I thought it looked cool or relaxed <laughs> or whatever. And he's like, Gaither, no, you know. And I never fucking touched it again and to this day, unless I'm moving it out of the way. I don't touch the mic cord because I hear his voice go, Gaither. <laughs> Singers hold the mic cord. Comics don't hold the mic cord. Yeah, they they came and saw my show the other day. I made a joke. I said, I said, um, Brian Burgess is the only. A uh, person that preached to me more than my Sunday school teacher, because no matter what problem I ever came to him with, he was always like, "Jesus Christ!" <laughs> no one, every single situation. Um, but I loved Burgess, man. He was, uh, he was sort of, uh, he was kind of that, you know, that uh, that stable personality in a, you know, in an unstable world. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, for people that don't know, Brian Burgess was the. Uh, he was a brilliant stand-up comedian, and when we started, he was the guy that was running uh, Stanford and Sons. He was the, the booker. I used to call him and be like, hey, Burgess, you told me to call you today about about getting a week. And he'd go, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and i go, yeah, you told me to call you on Monday. He'd be like, all right, hold on. Let me get my, <laughs> let me get my book. And uh, so he would get it and give me a date. But uh, that's how I learned that about Burgess. Like, he doesn't remember shit. You have to tell him he told you to call you. And he'd be like, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and if he saw something in you, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't very nurturing, at least to me. Not like, not in a, I shouldn't say not nurturing. He wasn't... Uh, he didn't blow any smoke up your ass. Like, I remember I came off stage one time, and I had done a spot at Westport, and uh, I had supposed to do 10 minutes, and I did 11 minutes, but it was such a good set that I just, I was on cloud nine. I came off that stage, and I walked in the office. He goes, Gaither, if I tell you to do a 10 minutes, don't do 11, don't do 10 and a half, don't do 12, don't do nine, do 10 <laughs> fucking minutes. It's not going to get you to the middle. It's just going to piss me off. And I was like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's so true. He, 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 he would tell, tell it like it was, but um, he was very, and I like that about him, by the way. He was, you know, he would be direct and tell you how it was. And did you, did you know the story about with uh, uh, Jim Wells when he was <clears throat> up on stage? Oh, yeah. Chris Porter tells a story. He was on the podcast, uh, gosh, it's been almost a year ago now, but. He tells a story about uh, he was he was in the back in the that office and, yeah. and the back mic was on. Yeah, and, and what did he say? Uh, he, uh, Jim Wells had just done a, a joke about it. Uh, it was like an abortion joke, and, and Burgess told him not to do anything controversial as yeah, the yeah. MC. 
and all of a sudden, just all throughout the entire club, you hear this, Jesus Christ, told you not to do any controversial fucking shit, you moron. Just going off. And, <laughs> and somebody comes and knocks on the door like, Burgess, the, the microphone, the back microphone is on. And you look up and, and like Jim Wells is just like petrified, like, shit. <laughs> the whole audience was like looking around, oh my God, it was so funny. Dude. But then... He was the most. The first time I saw him do stand up, I used to go up to uh, to Westport just to watch the open mic before I started, just to kind of get a gauge for what it was like. And everyone kind of sucked or whatever. But then he went up and did fifteen minutes, and I was thinking in my head, I was like, "There's no way this guy's an open micer." And uh, I, I've, I don't think I've ever laughed that hard in fifteen minutes. This is my twentieth year of doing stand up, eighteenth for a living. I don't think anyone has made me laugh that hard in 15 minutes. Now, who was it again? Brian Burgess. Oh, his show. Okay, yeah. And, and I looked at my brother when he was done. I mean, I was just crying. He was so funny, and his timing was so fucking perfect. And I looked at my brother when I was done, and I was like, that's what I'm talking about. That's how good I would like to be. I just got to chill over me when I, when I said that to you, because it reminded me of it. Um, but he was his timing, he used to drive around 435, because it was a 45-minute loop, and he said he would practice his material, because he knew it was important to do it. Even if there was no one, even if the audience sucked, his timing needed to be the same every time. And now I can do that. Like if a crowd's terrible, I can do 45 minutes on the nose. And if they're awesome, I can do 47 or 40, you know, but it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Um, and that's all, that's, that all came from Brian Burgess. I asked him, I said, what do I got to do to become a headliner? He goes, I need to laugh every 15 seconds for 45 minutes. And I was like... <laughs> Fuck, that seems like a lot. But now I can do that, and that's all because of him. And that's kind of an outdated way of thinking. Like, a lot of people don't think you need to do that now, but the crowd sure appreciates it. Oh, yeah. You know, when you can get a laugh every 15 seconds for 45 minutes, and, you know, you do the math on that, that's like 180 laughs or something. You've done your fucking job when 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 uh, when that's over. But at the time, I didn't appreciate... You know, at the time, I was just like, God, this guy's a fucking ball-busting bastard. Like he I just, thought the same thing. Like, he's just so... Um, I don't think anybody likes Burgess when they first meet him. No. Because he, he's very harsh, and he's like, you know, he comes he comes across... <clears throat> I don't know if it's intentional or not, but, but, but then you get to know him, and he's like got this soft side. Yeah. I remember, um, I think it was Michelle Fleener that said to him, uh, she said something like, you know... I, I know how sweet you really are. He like put his hand on our throat and he said, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> One time I asked him, his brother is Mitchell Burgess, who uh, you know, like co-wrote The Sopranos and directed a bunch of them. And uh, we were all, we were like, no one was in the room. It was like, a I don't know why, but it was, we were there at like five o'clock in the afternoon and no one was in the room at all. And we're sitting in the back thing and I go, uh, so does your brother have the same demeanor as you and he looks at me and he goes what do you mean is he a prick <laughs> and I was like yeah he's a prick and he's like yeah he's a prick <laughs> that sounds just like Burgess too <laughs> oh he was so goddamn funny I mean there in my eyes there's never been anybody as you know that I mean he's one of if not the funniest guy you've never heard of um, and and I also remember asking him I was like so why don't you do much comedy anymore? And he's like, you know that feeling you get when you kill? And I was like, yeah, it's fucking awesome. And he was like, yeah, I don't get that. <laughs> you know, I just, it's my job now. That's what I'm, what's, what's supposed to happen, you know? Yeah. And I didn't get that at the time. And now that I've been doing it as long as I have, like, I'm not saying I don't get a high from get, doing well, but I don't get the same kind of high, unfortunately. You know, and it doesn't last as long. And, you know... Well, prob part of it's probably because you don't need the validation anymore, you know? Yeah. It's already, you've been there, you've done that, you've achieved it so many times at such a high level that, you know, it's, I mean, it would have to be like on a really grand scale to yeah. really get that feeling again. Yeah, I was just in Vegas and I we had three shows on a Saturday and they all went well and, and like 30 minutes later I was in my room and that's the most depressed I've felt in a long time. Really? Just completely by myself and... You know, I just went from doing these shows in Vegas, and I don't drink anymore, and I'm married, so I wasn't going to go get a hooker, and <laughs> I don't gamble, and I was just like, fuck, this sucks. Like, I'm just in my room, and just, you know, it was just depressing. I mean, I got over it the next day, I woke up, and I was fine, but there for a couple hours, I was like, God, I really want to smoke some weed. 
<laughs> but I just want to go find some weed in Vegas, which wouldn't have been hard, but I've got this kid coming now, and, and uh, I love pot, and if I smoke it, I'll be stoned for three years. Yeah. <laughs> Straight, before I'm like, I probably should quit this again. Because um, that's, you know, I haven't drank in seven years, but it's weed was a lot harder for me to not do. Which brings me to my next uh, uh, question, is uh, what's, what's it like to be a dad? You know... You have a beautiful little girl. She's, oh. Yeah, she looks a lot like you. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I, I love being a dad. <clears throat> um... It's, I don't know, it's sort of this strange thing that you you can't really have a conversation with someone who doesn't have a child, you know? Um, there's sort of this understanding with people that do have, because, like, you experience things that you never would have thought you would have experienced before you had the child. You didn't even know you were capable of experiencing, capable of feeling that way about somebody. And um, it's just, it's this crazy thing to have that, connection with someone and uh but especially with them with you you know um and to have someone sort of look at you that way and and need your protection and need you for guidance and different things and you know really makes you straighten up but also it sort of puts everything in in perspective and makes you look at life different and even comedy different you know like before I had my daughter, everything was about comedy and nothing, that was the most important thing to me. But then when you have a child, then that becomes the most important thing. But even if at some point I end up doing something else other than comedy, the only, you know, the most important thing is that I take care of my child. That's the most, and then I maintain a relationship with my child. And so, you know, it's, it's just life, life altering, as you know. Well, not yet, I don't fully, but I can already feel it a little bit, you know, like, you know, I I, I, I do feel it, you know, um, I already feel protective of like, um, you know, more protective of my wife because my baby's inside of her and, yeah. and all of that stuff. Um, so I don't know exactly what it's like yet, but I'm looking forward to it because everyone talks like that, but I, you, um, that has a child, but I, I don't fully understand what they mean yet. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. I can pretty much guarantee that you will laugh harder at your child than you have any other comic or anything else. Yeah. Because your child is going to be funny like you. And, um, my daughter, when she does anything that makes people laugh, mm -hmm. like she gets this look on her face like, oh, that's funny. And then she'll keep doing it or find new ways to do it. Right. And she just keeps saying it. <clears throat> And she's just, she's just funny. She makes me laugh, you know. Um, like she, I remember the other day, she just shows up with a, a guitar. She's like, I I wrote a song about you with the guitar you, you got me. And I'm like, oh, really? First song, let's, let's hear it. She starts strumming the guitar. She just starts going. Yeah. Like, that's great. It's like, I wrote that when you were in the bathroom. Oh, good. <laughs> That's good. That's so sweet. Yeah. But they're so funny, and, and they, they just look at life different from a different perspective, not without all the complications and things, and they simplify comedy, and it's such a joy. Um, but the funny thing is that, um, you know, you've traveled, you've been to so many comedy clubs all over, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I... I had done the cartoon for the Stanford and Sons. Yeah, and the it had, it was it had, it had been seen by so many executives and people in the industry that absolutely loved it. But the one reason that they decided not to like put it on the air or move forward with it is because they were afraid that nobody would know Stanford's. Like it's it's in the Midwest. People aren't going to know who they are, and um, they're not famous. I'm like, well, yeah. And, until you put them on the fucking television and now right. they're famous, you know? Yeah. You just put them on the air and now they're famous. It's like this weird thing where like they were, did you ever hear this? Where like, well, if you want to be famous, you have to be famous. And it's, yeah. it didn't make any sense. It was just really, really weird. It's like we can't give you a job because you don't have any experience. Yeah. Or like when I called, uh, at one point I called a, a, an agency about representation and they were like, um, well, you, you can't talk to anybody. You, you'll have to have your representation call us. And I'm like, well, 
I'm, I, I need representation to get representation. What the? F- I'm like, are you serious? This yeah. is like this is just called back in a different voice. I know. Like, I, I represent Steve Kramer, and I I'd sh- like you to represent him. Well, the you know what the funny thing is? I actually it was an accident. I and I called up and I said, uh, I think it was the CAA or Three Arts. I don't remember which one it was, but I said, I'm uh, looking for representation and. And they were like, well, she says, well, you know, you just have to have your manager or your agent called. And I said, are you serious? I need representation to get representation. And she goes, she goes, yeah, unfortunately, that's how it works. And so I was like, I just decided to throw like a Hail Mary in there. I said, okay, well, I'm sure you guys will definitely want to uh, speak to me because uh, I just finished a cartoon for Kevin Hart. And um, I think you guys really like it. She said, oh, Kevin Hart. She goes, you want me to, uh, he's with us. You want me to patch you through to his um, manager? And I said, uh, yes, that would be fantastic. And then, so they pushed me through. Um, that was sort of an accident, but I mean, you you kind of have to get creative in this town to yeah to find different ways to get in the back door and different things. But um, what with the whole thing with the cartoon was that what made it so crazy was that it was such a unique comedy club and a place to do comedy like. Unlike any it, other comedy place, it prepared us for anything show business could throw at us because it was just a fucking circus in a in a in a good way. Yeah, and it's, it's sorry if I interrupted you, but it's it's sad now that it's all it's over. Like Jeff Glazer just passed away. Um, Jack Glazer's been gone for a few years. He wasn't really in the business that much, um, and now. To my knowledge, like you told me last night through a message, and then Craig left me a voicemail today saying that they were gonna that they were gonna have to close the club because he's got some health problems, and and without getting into all the reasons they're closing, um, they are, and uh, it's over now. Yeah. And and that was a great, you know, everybody thinks their open mic is the best and all that, but I would take ten good comedians from Kansas City that came out of that era, especially, and put them up against. Any 10 comedians from any city, I don't give a shit if it's New York, L.A., or anywhere in between, and be like, let's have a contest. And I'm not saying we would always win that contest if it was like a team, if there was some way to make a team competition out of a comedy contest, but we had uh, we had a hell of a lot of talent come out of there. I mean, yourself... Um, me, if I can say so. Absolutely, of course. Uh, Justin Leon, Chris Porter. Chris Porter, Jason Dixon came out of there. Um, uh, Mike Baldwin. Mike Baldwin, yes. Um, uh, James Inman, although he had started uh, much earlier than that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of comics. That AJ Finney. AJ Finney, absolutely. Um, James Johan. James Johan, absolutely. Uh, a lot of really, really good comics, and then he started before uh, that. That really, the, kind of that time period too, but um, he really thrived in that era. I remember he had done it for a while, and then he did something where he like I don't remember what it was that he had done, but he he moved to Boston because of Burgess. Oh, was it right? Oh, okay. yeah. And Burgess then when he came was, back, they were he was having like a, on fire. They were having a beer, and uh, James wanted uh, wanted Brian to headline him, and he wouldn't headline him, wouldn't headline him, and James was getting pissed off about. It. He's like, well, "What do I got to do?" And he's like, "He's like, you need to move." You guys, you gotta, you gotta go to a bigger city, man. You gotta, you gotta branch out. And he's like, you know, and he goes, I wouldn't even finish that beer. I'd be on a plane to fucking Hollywood or whatever. And he like moved to, he, he took his advice and moved to, uh, uh, moved to Boston like the next day and, or I don't know if it was the next day, but pretty quickly after that. And that, yeah, James is a beast. He's another one of those guys that is really fucking good. And I mean... There's a few guys out of Kansas City that if they got in front of the right people, it'd be over. You know, I mean, Justin Leon is one of the smoothest, funniest dudes. I mean, the eulogy that he gave his mother's funeral was one of the best performances I've ever seen. Not only funny, but like just Cosby-esque, you know. I mean, like that's who Justin always reminded me of was like a young, cool, cooler uh, Bill Cosby, and with all the troubles that Bill Cosby's had, you can't deny um, how fucking great he was and fatherly and all that. Even if of it was, course. even if it was bullshit. But Justin has a lot of that in him, and uh, and of all those people, and I'm not just saying this because you're on my podcast, but talent wise, I mean, as far as all the different shit Steve Kramer can do, I mean, this guy can draw. 
as well as anyone I've ever seen. He's he can play the guitar. He's a good stand-up. He can do voices. Um, you're very tech savvy, like <laughs> pound for pound, for lack of a better way to say it. You're the most talented person that I know. I mean, you've got just a shitload of talent. And uh, thank you. Where did that come from? Is that your is that genetic? Did you just? Uh, I think so. My uh, my my parents were kind of a weird uh, deal. Uh, my dad's name is Guy, and my mom's name is Gaylene. So that's right there is an awkward. Yeah. You know, who would have ever thought that these two would have ever, or you would have thought, you know, hey, you know, this should never work out. Our names are too. Mm-hmm. It will get made fun of. But they, um, my mom's side of the family was very. Um, musical and like they played um the piano and guitar and sang and did things like that now on my dad's side my dad's uncles were actually the um the backup singers the original backup singers for hank williams senior really yep and they were known as the oklahoma boys back then but then they transitioned into the uh, the willis brothers they were always doing like the grand Ole opry and different things like that i didn't even know about this until later on i found out i was like well that kind of makes sense but they would go on the Porter Wagner show and like crack these jokes and mm-hmm. and different things, and uh, so I guess some some of that some of that comes from there. But um, I don't know. I guess I, I think I I'm just I, really blessed. I, I'm you know one of these people that uh, you know I I I just look at life and feel like I'm so blessed and lucky um, to. You know, I, I, I try not to give it, it, it too much credit to myself um, because I, I think that the most important thing is if you have, if you're blessed with certain talents, you know, um, I didn't figure this out until later on. If you don't take advantage of those and really put an effort into it, that's when I would start feeling like shit about myself. Yeah. I noticed that because I would say to myself, I was fortunate enough, God blessed me with these talents. If I just kind of relax and, and just sort of skate by, then it's sort of, uh, I don't think I'm showing my appreciation for, you know, the talents that I have. And so I I, I just got to a point where I said, I'm just going to give everything that I have. I think that was another part of it, too, is that I was like always afraid, what if I give 100% and I'm not that good? Mm-hmm. I was afraid of failure. And so, um, so, yeah, so I would always like, I just, I was just sort of like, I'll do anything and everything. Um, to make it work, and then when I finally did the uh, the animation, started doing the animation, and animated the Stanford's deal. Thank God I did that because that has opened up so many more opportunities and mm-hmm. different things than anything else that I've ever done. Is there some place people can still see that or find that? Yeah, if you if you Google Stanford's uh, cartoon, it pops right up in the Google search. No it's, matter, it's fucking hilarious and uh, really well done and. Uh... Um, tell us your favorite uh, I should have asked you this before so you would have one in mind but do you have a favorite Glacier story uh, I'd have to figure let me think what is my favorite because there's so many um, Craig Glazier, while you're thinking about it for people doesn't know is the owner of Stanford Sons where we started and uh, um, he is a different breed of cat <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and he's the last one. Uh, he's the last one standing. They are all. They're all gone now. Well, I guess Old Man Glazer is still around, but I never had much interaction with him. Did you know Stanford? I did know Stan. Yeah, okay. I actually animated a uh, cartoon for him when he was running for mayor. Okay. Yeah, that's too funny. Yeah, he's probably going to outlive all of them. He's yeah. never going to die, Stan. <laughs> and and he's still. He's probably. He's got to be in his eighties now, right? And he looks. He looks. Uh, I don't know. He looks young. I don't know if he's had work done or what, <laughs> but that guy does not look... Um, he's got more energy than all of them. Maybe he made a deal with the devil. There's, know, something, there's something going on there. Um, but do you have a... Do you think? Uh, <clears throat> not even your favorite, just any Craig Glazer story. I just remember one time I was at Craig's house, and uh, in, the funny thing about Craig is that Craig, when he tries to whisper... He talks like this, and, this blah, 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 blah. and you can hear him from across the room. Right. And so it's so annoying because you'd be up on stage and you're like, oh God, there's Craig over there, mm-hmm. you know, talking to some girl with big tits, and you can hear him, you know, the king of steam, you've got to read my book, you know. <laughs> Every little part about it. So when he tries to whisper, it's, uh, 
it's so loud and it carries through the entire room. And I was at his apartment one time and he's talking on the phone to some girl and he's arguing like about the dumbest shit, like the weirdest shit you would ever, like her boyfriend got on the phone. He's like, well, Maybe I didn't put it in her butt. I don't know. I didn't what's this all about? Okay, yeah, what's your point? And then all of a sudden he got really mad, more angry than I've ever seen him before, and he started yelling. And I'd never seen him yell before, but the funny thing was when he started yelling, it's like you could barely hear him. He was like, Oh yeah, I'll meet you downstairs. That same sound that when he when he laughs, he goes <laughs> like nothing comes out. And so I was just laughing my ass off because he was so mad. And I was like trying not to laugh. I was like, I'm sorry, man, but that's just so funny. I was like, he can't even hear what you're saying. You're trying to yell at the guy. Maybe downstairs. <laughs> yeah, when I, last time I, I went back for, uh, gosh dang it, her name is escaping me and I love her. Um, she's got uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, yes, I'm Jennifer. Jennifer, yep. Um, we're having a benefit and... And on the and I was coming my my date was coming up there and they had my name spelled time T I M E Gaither <laughs> and he's on stage telling everyone thanks for coming out and you know telling saying who's on who's going to be on this benefit show and all this stuff and and uh, and he had already said I was there and uh, I was off I was sitting in the crowd and I was talking to the other comics and I'm like they spelled my name. Time Gaither, Jesus Christ, and he all he hears is Tim Gaither, and he's like, Jesus Christ, Gaither, I said your name, and I'm like, I know, Craig, I'm talking about something completely different. He's like all mad at me, like Gaither, always bitching about something. <laughs> Dude, I'm not bitching about anything. Um, but what people don't know about Craig is that uh, for all the times he screwed us out of fifty bucks here and there, and every time he's ever booked anyone. Um, <laughs> that's like his business model, it seems to be. Um, and Craig will probably hear this podcast and you know, it's true, buddy. So, uh, you can get pissed off if you want, but, <laughs> but, but you know, it's true. But he, he does have a, uh, a, a side to him that a lot of people don't know about. Um, he just left me a voicemail about the club closing and, uh, and he was pretty, uh, I don't even know how to say it. I, I wish I'd have brought my phone out here. Because it, it wouldn't embarrass him. It was nothing embarrassing or anything. But he's like, we get, we had a good run and all this stuff. And uh, and it was kind of endearing, you know. And there is that side of Craig. And, and I know his dad was really kind of a dick to him growing up. And So that's where some of it comes from. Yeah, and you get a little older and you, 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 know, you fight your own demons. And you realize why you are a certain way. And some things you wish you could change, but... You can't seem to about yourself and all that. We've all got that in us, and you older get a little older, and maybe it's my kid coming, and you have a kid now, but and you see like, oh well, no one's perfect, and we're all fucked up in our own way, and exactly, you know, we all wish that we weren't a certain way about you know whatever. Um, and, and you get a little older though, and you realize, and you try to change it, and that's that's all you can do, but. How did you meet the Glazers when you first started doing stand-up at Stanford's? You know, I was doing comedy for about mm, maybe four months. And I'd never even seen, or if I'd seen them, I didn't know who they were, so I didn't really pay attention. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff or Craig. And then someone kept coming up to me and saying, hey, Craig really likes you and he wants to get you like working on the weekends or something like this. And I was like, who, who's Craig? I don't even know who that is. And then, um, and then I finally figured out who he was and he had approached me or he was eating dinner and I was walking by and he said, Hey Steve. And he introduced me to everybody. And, and this is another really good thing about Craig that I really liked. Uh, he said, you know, <clears throat> he goes, this is Steve Kramer. He's really, he's a really good comic. He was all about Kansas city. So he loved Kansas city comics. He loved bragging about Kansas city comics, comics that started at his club. Right, and so he was really good at promoting everything. But you know, um, he enjoyed promoting the comics. And he said, uh, to, he introduced me to everybody he was eating dinner with. He said, "This is a really good comic." He was, "Hey, next week, um, Polly Shore is going to be in town. Uh, why don't you feature? You know, open up for Polly Shore." And I said, "Oh, I haven't featured yet. You know, 
I appreciate it, but I didn't want to screw up my, you know, my, his first impression of me up on stage. And he's like, oh, no, no, you'll, you'll do fine. You'll, 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 you'll be fine. He goes, how much time do you have? And I said, uh, maybe like 15 minutes. I mean, I might have had 12 minutes at the time, but mm-hmm. um, I figured I could stretch it out a little bit. And he said, uh, oh, you, you'll do fine. So he like really pushed me into it. And then it was like the best sets I'd ever had in my life. Luckily, I did really good in front of uh, in front of Polly Shore. Thank God. And then I was able to work. I worked with Polly Shore and Bobby Slayton. What? It's a crazy week to start out. Featuring. That's funny. Yeah, the first time I ever went on the road, um, I, I I worked. I fe- I, I MC James Johan featured and uh, Polly Shore headlined. I made $150, James made 500 and Paulie Shore made 30 grand. <laughs> and uh, I remember saying to James, I was like, you made $500? And he'd already been to comedy like 10 years, and he's like, yeah, I made $500. Fuck off. And I was like, no, I think that's awesome. I can't believe they pay you $500 to, to do this. And uh, he was just like, whatever. <laughs> You're a dumbass. Um, but that is how you learn. That's how you... You know, that's why I feel sorry for people who start out in L.A. Because, one, they don't know that there's so many other places in the country and that making people laugh in L.A. is not the same thing as making people laugh on the road in the Midwest or in the East or the North or the South or, you know, just there's so many other places in this country and you can't get any real stage time here. When I started in Westport, we had the best of Kansas City, which is on a Tuesday, and if you did well at the open mic, they would eventually ask you to come do Best Kansas City. And there was always places around in and around Kansas City where you could do 20 minutes or 30 minutes and really learn how to stretch it out. Like I would make my set list and put an X by where I thought I could maybe talk to the crowd. Like I would sandwich it in between two bits that I knew were strong and I'd be like, right here, I'm going to talk to the crowd as much as I can. And then... When it starts to go south, or there's nothing else to talk about, then I've got this really solid bit to follow it up. And that's how you built an act. And Elliot Threet had me um, headlining one-nighters when I had maybe 20 minutes of material. He was getting me to work for Doug and Dana McCraw, and I would just go up and take a couple shots and drink some beers. And I learned, I, I not only wrote stuff on stage, but you learned how to just, you know, when I was first started to headline, people were like, you know, how do you... How'd you get enough material to headline? And I was like, I just feature slower. And also make them funnier so you get a bigger laugh in between. And also, which you was, was easier to do when you're the headliner, because I take you seriously. Right. Um, but also the um, take more sips in between <laughs> the show. Um, but I think the secret to doing comedy, one of the secrets to doing comedy is knowing um, what is good advice and what is bad advice. Yeah. Because uh, I think it was Emery Emery that said to me, he said, um, open with one of your strongest bits and close with your best bit because you're, uh, they're going to decide within the first you know, 30 seconds whether or not they like you. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you want to close, whatever you close with, that's what they're going to remember you by. And so I've always lived by that. <clears throat> no matter what I do, even outside of comedy, up on stage, that's what I do when I create a video. Yeah, and so I, that made sense to me, registered with me, and so I thought I really liked it. And but then there was somebody once that came up to me right when I first got started, and they said, "They said don't do impressions. Jim Carrey does impressions." And at that time, Jim Carrey was like making like ten million a, a motion picture, and I remember thinking, I was just like, "Yeah, okay," but I was thinking that's like the dumbest advice I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Why would I not want to be like Jim and, Carrey? And, and, and like he's the first and only person that's ever done fucking impressions. I mean, yes, yeah. 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 I read something in a book I think uh, that said uh, listen to everyone and no one, which means listen to everyone and then decipher whether or not that advice pertains to you or whether or not it's just complete bullshit and whether it doesn't apply. And if it doesn't apply to you, then you don't listen to it. But everybody wants to tell you, give you their advice, and. Uh, um, I brought up. I can't remember how much. I don't know how much time we got left on that thing. I brought up Chums, um, which is you brought that to Kansas City, right? Yep. Uh, Chums was where I really realized that I can do this, and it was the first night where um, the headliner didn't show up, and I was I was featuring, and they said, uh, "How much time can you do?" And I was like, 
I don't know, maybe 40, and which was complete bullshit. I had right. like I had like maybe 15, 20 minutes of material. Yeah. And uh, and I was I had done 17 minutes, and I had my I had a, I used to do a crocodile hunter impersonation. That was my closer. I remember that. And uh, and I had used my kill. I had my closer in my back pocket, but that's all I had left. And so I had done 17 minutes. I'm supposed to do 40. So I've got 23 minutes left, and I've got one bit that takes maybe one minute. And I'm like, oh, shit. And then somebody sent me up a shot. And I took it, and then I just started messing with people. And then they kept sending me shots, and I did an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> and and it was good. Like, I was, I mean, you know, I'm sure if I saw it now, I'd think it was shit. But it was good in the sense that I was able to, for the first time in my career, melt my little bit of material and who I was off stage into, you know, who I'd, I'd always been funny, but I was able to melt it together and... And I, it was, it was awesome. I, like I realized, like I can really do this, you yeah. know. Like I, I, I know that I can do this, like for real. And there's something inside of me that I can, you know, nurture. And and uh, so yeah, God bless you for bringing that to Kansas City. That was a great little spot to like Dude, work out awesome. stuff and try. So, and plus, they really loved the comedy there too. But were you like me when I first started? Um, as well as I did, because uh, I won on the first night, uh, there was the, the contest. I'd won on the first night that I did this, um, on my very first night doing stand-up. And so that was a real big confidence booster. But I think the first 10 shows that I'd ever done, I'd never had to deal with a heckler. And I was so nervous. Like, what will I do? Will I freeze up? So I'd like, in my head, written like these comebacks that would be generic that I could use on anyone. Mm-hmm. And the first time that I did a show and I had a guy heckle me and like I just thought of funny stuff like the way he looked and I'm and going back and forth. That for me, I think was the biggest hurdle because, which is kind of like what you went through at Chums, because you realized, okay, it's even if I don't have my material and I've got to fill some time, I can, I'm funny just bantering back and forth with people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know, it's sort of like a validation thing, yeah. you know, and it, and that was one of the biggest confidence boosters for me after that show and probably for you as well. Yeah. And I used to get really nervous whenever someone would heckle or something. Cause I thought like everyone's looking at me and I have to say something really clever here or be really funny and I would get really nervous. And then I, that's somewhere along the line, I, I not only learned to take my time, but I realized that people who heckle generally aren't very smart. That's right. And if you just take your time, they will do the work for you. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times all you have to do is, what's that? What'd you say? And they either, they either get scared or when they repeat themselves, by the time they repeat themselves, which I heard what they fucking said. All right. I just need that extra five seconds for them to repeat it and then formulate what I'm going to say back in my head. Yeah. And it makes them look stupid, and I realize that they're, you know, people who come and try to heckle the comic or be funny or whatever, they're not a Mensa member. They're not out there, you know, they don't work at NASA. They're some <laughs> dumb, drunk fuck, and, or they wouldn't be doing that. And uh, that, to me, was very, once I finally started learning to take my time, and, and you know, it, it's, it's so, you don't have much time up there to, but if you take your time, the audience will let you they'll, they'll you know if you get in too much of a rush they they sense how uncomfortable you are yeah. but if you're comfortable they're comfortable yeah especially if you just kind of give the audience like a look like kind of like you're amused like it you know, kind of laugh but like mm-hmm. are you hearing this shit like what is this yeah you know and because they're you're kind of going through it the same as them but little things like that where you're right, you just need just like maybe five seconds and then bam, you think of something. And then a lot of times, once you get that first one out, then the audience is with you and then you could probably go all night Yeah, on that particular person. Yeah, and just keep, uh, there's nothing better than than that. One of my old podcasts is called The Best 10 Minutes of My Career and go back and find it and, and listen to me tell the story of, of Bruce Bruce. There was this uh, woman in the crowd there was actually a packed crowd, and, and she was, uh, there was like the gayest guy I've ever seen in my life. Like he had this shirt tied up, and, and like you could see his whole stomach, and his shirt said, Sister for Rent. And uh, 
and I and and anyway, the room was packed, and he came into the room, and the room got real quiet, and whatever joke I was doing just laid there, and I was like, you know, you just fucked up my joke, right? <laughs> and he was like, what I do? And I was like, well, they saw you sashay in here and knew that if I was any kind of comic, I had to say something to you. And it's, that was, it was featuring for Bruce Bruce. So it was an all-black audience. And, uh, and, and he, she was like, you leave her alone. And I was like, her? I just saw her in the men's room. And it started this 10-minute thing between her and I where she was like, she was like, I come up there and kick your ass. And I go, girl, by the time you get up here, I'll be in the office cashing my check. <laughs> and it was just this 10-minute thing of her lobbing him over the middle and me just knocking him out of the park. And I came off stage and, uh, and all those black folks were like, you a crazy motherfucker. You a crazy white boy. And uh, it was the best. The best. Is that when you first started writing? Because uh, you've got some really good um, jokes. You've got some really good material about interacting with some of the other, you know, black audiences and like some of the other black comics and stuff. And like your joke about the being on the plane, right? And uh, with the uh, the African American woman who says, you know, try uh, about hijacking, right? Uh, you you really started writing some really good material about those exchanges. Is that kind of where that started? Uh, yeah, and just growing up, uh, a lot of my best friends were black, and I had this I had this wrestling coach that was black in high school that was. Uh, super smart but he would get excited and uh he would pronounce my name wrong he'd be like Gayful! <laughs> and uh so i just always related really well to, to black folks for some reason and uh burgess actually was like uh justin was featuring for bruce bruce and he was like you ought to bring timmy up he'll, he'll do really well with uh, this audience and he was like they'll eat him alive justin <laughs> and he goes i promise you i think he bet him like a beer or something and i went up and did five and just killed and i did this bit about how uh some comic had brought me up for an all-black audience, and they were like, "Like he's a white boy now, and all this shit. So I wrote this joke about how, how fucked up that is, and how <laughs> fucked up it would be if I went up and like, we got a colored fella here. You know, and uh, black audiences love honesty. Yeah. Is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, uh, anything before we get out of here? Uh, just my website, stevekramerentertainment.com, and you can, there's, you can have access to uh, my Facebook, all of my animations, Twitter, everything's right there. Um, it's Kramer, K-R-A-M-E-R, and uh, anything else before I plug my website? My website is timgathercomedy.com. You guys go there and check out my YouTube. is Instagram, Twitter, all that crap is on there. And uh, as always, go to Making It Happen, M-A-C-A-N, It Happen. Help out little Bo Macon. And uh, Steve, I've really enjoyed having you on here. I didn't. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't know about you and... And uh, a lot of similarities. That yeah, I didn't a lot of similarities in our in our life. And uh, yeah, it was great, man. Thanks very thanks much for having me, man. Event. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast, as always. And I will be in Springfield at uh, Blue Room Comedy Club on July 13th and 14th. So uh, if you're anywhere near that area, come down and uh, check out the show. It's one of my favorite clubs in the country. It's a small room and. Uh, just a lot of fun so hope you guys can check that out and uh, make sure you go to timgathercomedy.com follow me on all my stuff and uh, we're really starting to get some uh some some traction on this we're getting a lot more listeners and uh, i really appreciate the people who have been here since the beginning so uh keep listening god bless all of you thanks take care bye